0: Hello, and welcome to Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. It is I, Joshua Molina, and today I have the podcast all to myself. Why, you ask? Not because we actors are on strike here in Los Angeles or because Stephanie and Liel just needed a week off on the beach, but because today, at least if you're listening on the day this episode drops, is Tisha Bove, and we want to bring you a very special conversation we had recently that fits today's themes perfectly. But before we introduce our guest, podcast host, and the star of the Academy Award-winning documentary, Undefeated, I want to talk a little bit about this day. It's not an overstatement to say that Tisha B'Av is the saddest day in Jewish history. It was the day the spies sent by Moses to tour the Promised Land returned with a less than stellar report, dooming the Israelites to 40 years in the desert. It was the day on which both the first and the second temples were destroyed one by the Babylonians in 586 BCE and the other by the Romans in 70 AD. It was the day the Jews of England were expelled in 1290 and the day in 1941 the Nazis approved the final solution. On this day, Jews all around the world fast and mourn and read Lamentations, but we here on Unorthodox, we thought we would focus on what we think may just be, particularly nowadays, The Most Important Tisha B'Av Takeaway. And it begins with a story, one of the most famous stories told in the Talmud. Once upon a time in Jerusalem, there was a rich guy who was throwing a party and he asked his servant to go out and deliver an invite to his BFF, a man named Kamsa. The servant, being tired or distracted or not too bright, delivers the invitation to another guy named Bar Kamsa instead. Easy mistake. And it just so happens that his boss, the rich dude, hates Bar Kamsa even more than he loves Kamsa. So far, it's all like a good slapstick comedy, but things soon turn dark. Bar Kamsa shows up for the party, and immediately the host tells him to scram. Poor Bar Kamsa. he looks around and sees all of Jerusalem's celebrities sitting there enjoying the meal. So he turns to the host and says, Look, dude, I'm already here. Don't kick me out. Let me pay for my meal and stay. No way, says the host. Leave. Okay, Bar Kamsa continues. I'll tell you what. You let me stay, and I'll split the cost of this entire feast with you. Still, the host remains adamant, asking Bar Kamsa once again to immediately vacate the premises. So Bar Kamsa tries one last time. I really don't want to be embarrassed in front of all my friends, he tells the host. So I'm willing to foot the entire bill for this lavish meal if you just let me stay. I'll pay for everyone. No dice, says the host, and he kicks the stunned Bar Kamsa to the curb. Walking home, Bar Kamsa is livid. Not only was he mistreated, he thinks, but no one witnessing his humiliation. All his powerful and fancy friends did anything to intervene on his behalf. So he hatches up the sort of plan only a properly compensated Hollywood writer could come up with. He goes to see the Romans and tells them the Jews are contemplating rebellion. The Romans don't really believe him. So Bar proposes a test. Look, send the Jews a nice cow, he says. And if they refuse to sacrifice it in their temple, you'll know an insurrection is afoot. This makes sense to the Romans and they give Bar a nice cow to take to his pals in Jerusalem. But Bar Kamsa is a cunning man, and he knows his Jewish law, and he knows that if an animal has any blemish, it's considered unfit for sacrifice. And so he takes out his knife and he cuts the poor cow, making it ineligible as an offering. Receiving the cows, the rabbis are terrified. They see the blemish, and they understand exactly what Bar Kamsa had done. But the more stringent among them says there's nothing that could be done because you can't burn a blemished cow on the altar, even if your life depended on it. So the sacrifice was refused, the Romans were roused to action, and next thing you know, the temple is on fire. Because of Kamtsa and bar kamtza, the Talmud tells us, the temple was destroyed. A strong warning against sinat chinam, or baseless hatred. Now look, we have a lot of baseless hatred going around these days. As I record this, Israel is quivering with what looks perilously like a major internal conflict with hundreds of thousands protesting against the government and Israelis calling really for the first time in history for mass scale civil disobedience, including refusing to serve in reserve duty in the army. The public discourse over there is no longer civil or friendly. It's rife with accusations of treason and betrayal, each side accusing the other of malice. And things, of course, aren't much better here, where the political has become personal and where people on both sides of the ideological spectrum often struggle to keep relationships going, choosing instead to see anyone who doesn't agree with them as some shade of stupid, evil, or both. It's clear we need help now more than ever, and our guest today... Well, he's at least taking a good first step. Bill Courtney is a successful businessman from Memphis who volunteered as a football coach in a local high school, transforming a bunch of kids who had lost all hope in the system and in themselves into champions on the gridiron and off. It's a journey depicted in the Academy Award-winning documentary film, Undefeated. And now he has a new podcast called An Army of Normal Folks which has only been out for a few months, but is already one of the most popular podcasts in America. In each episode, Bill interviews, well, normal folks, people who didn't wait for the government or the party or city hall to step in and fix things, but took the initiative and worked to build community. His guests include ex-cons working to help other prisoners rehabilitate, former drug addicts who know how hard it is to kick the habit, and other amazing people, from all walks of life and faith traditions and political convictions who are simply working to spread not baseless hatred but chinam or baseless love and lord knows we need a lot of that these days so this tisha above we're doing something we almost never do here on unorthodox we're bringing you a conversation almost entirely unedited because liel and i spent an amazing hour talking to bill courtney about the things all of us can do to give up on our anger and resentment and commit ourselves instead to empathy and change. We hope you enjoy our conversation.
1: Coach, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks for having me. I, uh, you don't mind
1: that I call you coach, right? Like you're, yeah, you'll always I,
2: be coach after this movie. Coach, Bill, Billy whatever it doesn't matter but coach is fine that's coach
0: coach makes us feel athletic (laughs) yeah
2: that's (laughs) well that's great so yeah coach is just fine
1: this is the closest we would be to football glory ever in our own sad (laughs) lives listen your new podcast an army of normal folks is my absolute addiction i I can't recall feeling more you know kind of enthusiastic and really you know emotionally attuned to a show in a really long time i I had
2: i Handedly, I do a lot of interviews and I have for the last 10 years on the movie and the book and now the podcast. And, you know, it takes about four minutes to find out if the person interviewing has actually watched the movie or read the book or listened to the <laughs> podcast. So I'm like all jazzed up now for the next however minute we got because you've actually listened. But thanks for the compliment. That's really of nice.
1: actually listened. I love it. We'll get to it in a second. Before we do, however, I, I want our listeners to-, to know you. So very briefly, take us through this extraordinary life story that brings you to where you are right now. Um, <laughs> you start out, you're in business. Hey, you you well, have your lumber business. You're yeah, doing Really I, I, well. Yeah. Uh,
2: okay. I'll, I'll give you the, as fast a reader's digest version of the can grew up in Memphis, born and raised here. Dad left home when I was four. Uh, he died this year and I had no relationship with him at all. um, Mom married and divorced five times. Uh, to give you kind of a microcosm of how I grew up, my first real knockdown drag out fist fight was with daddy number three, and daddy number four shot at me down a hallway with a thirty-eight caliber pistol. I dived out of window to save myself that night. So that's where I came from. Uh went to Ole Miss when I was 17 years old. First time I ever saw campus is when I checked into my dorm. Um graduated the, because of the way I came up, the, 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 the most valuable mentors in my life were my coaches. And I thought being a teacher and a coach was, uh, something valuable. And I'm going to interrupt you right there, which as, as
1: you will soon figure out is something that Jews do a lot. We have a term called collaborative overlapping, which means interrupting each other as we speak. You can interrupt me all you want. Listen, uh, you're telling it like it's completely obvious, but a person who had a fist fight with Daddy Number Three and then was shot at by Daddy Number Four—that's not a person you think would. Oh, obviously, that kid's going to college, a great college at that, and studying hard, and you know, playing football, and becomes an athletic star. Uh, what what drove you to do that rather than to you know be resentful, drink, do drugs, get into fights, get into trouble?
2: You can be resentful do drugs, get into fights, get in trouble and drink and still make good grades. <laughs> <laughs> that is, that's is—that's the message we want to get out. <laughs> um, you can get the drugs off. I never Listen, did kids. that. But yeah, I was resentful. I mean, candidly, I've had daddy issues until about five, six, seven years ago. Um, there's something about being a strapping 15, 16. Look, I lettered in six sports in high school. Six, my father held the 100-yard dash record in the state of Tennessee until the 90s. He started at point guard and quarterback his freshman through senior year at East High School in Memphis, incidentally, where Sybil Shepard went to school. And um, he loved sports. And when you let her in six sports in high school and you do well in sports, your name's in the local paper. And my name is his name. I know damn good and well he knew what I was doing. I know damn good and well he saw me um, in the papers and stuff. He never attended a single game of anything I ever competed in. And there comes a time where you start questioning, what is wrong with me? Why am I so broken and valueless that my own father, who I know shares the same interest I have, has no interest in seeing me? And that will affect you forever. It's an enormous amount of trauma. Um, So just because a person goes to college and makes good grades and finds a life, you know, to to play on what we're going to talk about later, I'm a normal guy. And normal folks have family problems. They have financial problems. They have issues they have to overcome and deal with. And I'm no different than anybody else. It's just... You know, my particular uh, challenge was all of that. And so quickly, I'll finish so that we can get into it. But um, I I, I had a major in psychology and English. I wanted to be a child psychologist. I was teaching school and coaching football while I was planning on getting my doctorate. And that's kind of what I wanted to do. And I met Lisa. And you can see, you know, you see what this is. And Lisa's a dime. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, I'm from the South. So in the South, the way you keep, you know, you you won't know what I mean when I say lightning into a slab, but if you're fishing and you're Mm -hmm. on like eight pound test and you get a 12 pound bass, you got to work hard for that thing, not to break the line and to get it in the boat. Well, that's what I felt like when I married Lisa was I'd lit into a 12 pound slab on eight pound test. And so, The only way I knew to keep her around was we just started having kids. And so I had four kids in four years. And now now I know she's hooked. She's not going anywhere now. (laughs) Problem is as a teacher and a coach making 17 grand a year, it doesn't cover it. And so that's how I got into the public world. And in 2001 with $17,000, I started my business on a wing and a prayer. And now we do 80 million in sales. I have 150 employees. I've got We do business in 40 different countries, so that's a professional side, but my passion was always coaching, and in the state of Tennessee, you can be what's called a certified non-faculty coach. There's not many of us. There's about five where you can be a full-fledged high school football coach uh, accredited by the accredited agencies and insurance and everything if you go take all these classes and stuff, And, and I did all that, so... While growing my family and my business, I stayed in, in your
1: spare time with a hundred something employees, four children, <laughs> a wife. Yeah. I, st-
2: I stayed with my passion, which was coaching and coached thirty one years. And so, um, yeah, there that's i I think I did the best I could kind of catch you up. well done,
0: very well done. Thanks. as a teenager, had you found father figures
2: in your coaches? In fairness, I had two both my paternal and fraternal grandfather were good men and they stayed in my life as best they could but when you're 15 you don't want to go to mom dad or dad son things with your grandfather you know it's just it it's it's a positive influence but it's it still misses a little better than nothing and i don't want to diminish who they were as men because they were f- fabulous men but um and so the answer is yes uh i found You know, I don't think any of us emulate exactly the people we respect, but if you take 10 different people that we respect that were influences on us, we take the things we like from each of them. And so our sum total as a human being often comprises pieces of many people that we've met along the way. And so I would say that I took the things that I respected and appreciated the most out of many of coaches that coached me going up. That in some total, those pieces now are so much of what I am as a result of my experiences with those guys. And
1: then it's just your luck that a pair of documentary filmmakers walk into your locker room and said, Hey, coach Courtney, you know, we're making this movie, uh, undefeated, would you be on it fast forward? It wins the Academy Award. How did that come about? That sounds like a
2: fairy tale. A a, a couple of 29, 30-year-old guys wearing skinny-legged jeans, wearing scarves, which you do not (laughs) do in (laughs) Memphis. (laughs) They had one credit to their name before making Undefeated, and it was a thought-provoking, heartwarming documentary on the World Series of Beer Pong. Honestly, (gasps) that was (gasps) it. Uh, uh, And uh. they follow us around for about nine months and leave Memphis with 550 hours of film and say they're going to make a movie And you're like, all right, well, we'll see this on channel 362 (laughs) at 2 a.m. on one Wednesday. Honestly, I thought it would be, it was my last year at Manassas, which was seven years coaching. And I thought it would be a neat video yearbook of that last year together. I mean, we agreed to it just because why not? I mean, we'll get a free CD of our season. And then a year and a half later, I'm walking down the red carpet at the Academy Awards, and we won, which is ridiculous, but it happened. So here's here's what I love about this movie.
1: On the surface, you think like oh, I've seen the story before. It's The Blind Side. It's Friday Night Lights. It's It's all those inspiring. It's football in small town America. It's great, not small town, but you know, right. (laughs) And then and then you come in. And there's something about this movie which is just so incredibly soulful. I mean, you had this phrase that really stuck with me. Uh, I'm going to botch it. Football doesn't build character. Football reveals character. That's not botched. That's dead nuts. Okay. Talk to us about the philosophy of coaching, the, the thing that you saw when these kids who had so much potential and so much magic in them, but also so many burdens and so much to deal with. They come in, and, and you decide not just to make them football champions, which they win, which I don't know if I was alone in this, but I couldn't care less if you won or lost a champion. I mean, it was nice that you won, but the thing that I was really after and the thing that I got out of the movie is watching you really you know, mold them into, uh, into understanding their potentials. What's, what's the process like?
2: So first of all, a lot to unpack. Undefeated is not a football movie. It is a human interest story with football as the backdrop. That's why it's different than Blindside and Friday Night Lights and all of that. That's because football is, is the vehicle, but that's not the story. Second of all, undefeated has nothing to do with wins and losses on a field. It It's about not being defeated by your circumstances. And third, I didn't go there to save anybody. I am not. I am. I despise white paternalism. Uh, I despise all of that stuff, I also despise the notion of white guilt. I went to Manassas to coach football no differently than I coached kids in rural areas that I coached or suburban areas that I've coached or wherever, uh, private schools, public schools, whatever. And when you coach football, there's another saying, uh Players win games. Coaches win players. I've never seen a coach make a tackle, score a touchdown, just doesn't happen. you got to win your players. And I believe kids want to carry themselves with character. I believe they want discipline. I believe they want to be held accountable. But I also believe they'll follow those tenets if they feel like they're being loved and cared for. And Love and football are not two words that are often used in the same <laughs> sentence, but I, I, do be, I, I do believe that. And another one of my mantras is the greatest measure of the success of a leader is the actions of the followers. Um, and so the greatest measure of the success of a coach, in my mind, is not wins and losses. Talent is about wins and losses. What my job as a coach is to do is to win those kids win their hearts and minds, and you don't win that with X's and O's. You win that with character, commitment, integrity, the dignity of hard work, grace, understanding what teamwork really is, understanding that commitment is not just being on time. It's also finding a spouse that you want to be faithful to the rest of your life. And talking about deep, meaningful things that last long after the days of football plans over that serve you well on the football field, but well in the game of life as well. And if you start coaching and teaching that and holding kids accountable to those tenets and fundamentals, the football wins come. You look at the um,
1: prevalent academic or pedagogical philosophies these days, and what you just said, which is so beautiful and so moving, and I I sign on a, a billion percent, is almost like if I may, kind of a relic. You hear so many approaches said, well, no, we have to look at all the different disadvantages that are very real that these kids are facing. We have to make sure that we make them understand that they live in a world in which there are all kinds of systemic problems that impact them. We have to take their feeling into consideration we have to make things pleasant for them we have to let them lead rather than try to lead them all of this i'm, I'm not here to mock these views i think they for the most part come out of a very well meaning place to really you know empower kids and and do nice things for kids but you don't often hear hey you know build character have commitment have you know a backbone in the way that you do that you see listening to you and 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 from the movie do do you feel that do you feel that in the culture or is that just uh me talking from my upper west side of manhattan living room all right
2: first of all i'm from memphis and you used the word pedagogical (laughs) (laughs) so we've got to quit that Um, that was to
0: get back for the fishing reference
2: you made yeah that's that's right right. i mean that was five (laughs) syllables so i don't know what to do with that word um Oh man, there's so much to unpack. You need to have a two-hour podcast, but uh, <laughs> we're not in, going anywhere. In general, to what you just said, I find, uh, okay, um, there is systematic racism and has been in our country, acknowledged, agreed. I will stand up on a soapbox and scream that till I I bleed from my eyes. Okay, Um, there is a free society and free education, but the idea that hard work alone should make hard work alone with all of the advantages the American society gives to the people in it, um, you have no excuse not to be successful because all you got to do is pull yourself up by your bootstraps and work hard and you're going to be okay. That's also a ball of crap. Because there are um, barriers in certain parts of our society that people just have no idea about unless they live them or they've lived in them. Um, Having said all that, I do agree you have to acknowledge that stuff. But you have to be very careful and walk a line to be understanding but not allow the people you're working with to become victims. Because the minute they become victims, they, um, you lose the opportunity, uh, for success. Victimization is just as dangerous to me as is some of the problems we're talking about. And so there's a difference in acknowledging and accepting and trying to work through systematic problems and. Backing completely off and making excuses for everybody because of those problems. Look, we all have stuff to overcome, some more than others. And the some that have more than others to overcome, it's our job to help erase those barriers and do everything we can for people that aren't as advantaged as we are. But in the same respect, if you start allowing those narratives to become excuses for victimhood, you're doing them a greater disservice. And I think we have a problem in our society today that we don't want to talk about race and faith and creed and politics because we're so afraid of getting canceled. And and we're so afraid of what people might sum us up to be based on what we look like, how we vote or how we worship. And, and I think it's really important we break through those barriers and start having conversations about the stuff that matters and crossing those conversations in racial and religious and cultural lines so that we can start to understand one another a little better. And once we do, then we can start serving each other and not be victims of circumstance, but find ways to overcome circumstance.
1: Amen so, to that. So I, I want to get... On to the podcast, which, as I mentioned, really is, is one of my absolute favorite. Can I, can, can favorites. I
2: we're gonna do this interrupting thing now? What'd you sure. call it? Yeah, you you're, like? doing it. you're doing what, very well. What was the fancy word for it? Collaborative overlapping. Okay. I'm gonna do a collaborative overlap real quick with you, if that's okay. Please do. I was in New York, um, shortly after within the last within the year of undefeated being released. Really, I've been in New York a billion times, but Nine years ago, I was there. Was a New York has a film festival, and I was in. Undefeated was one of the features, and I was there for Q and A afterwards. And the very first question I got was a lady in the back, and I'll never forget. And she stood up and says, "What is your response to the knock on this film that you are nothing more than a white paternalist?" And I looked at the person that was with me on stage and I said, help, because, and the reason I said help is not because I'm unwilling to answer a question. I'll answer any question. Um, I didn't know what she was talking about. Right. I candidly had no idea what she was talking about. Since then I've gotten quite an education in what she was talking about. And what bothers me about it is I get, the notion, and I think it's real in a lot of circumstances, but just because you're white and working with black people, or just because you're black and working with Asian people or whatever, just because there's two different races involved in something does not necessarily mean that there's paternalism or some statement to be made. It could be that we're just Human beings celebrating our humanity, working together so that we all can become better at a certain discipline. And the problem is, we can't even get to that notion because we can't get past what culture has started defining us in as a result of what we look like and who we are and how we vote. And I think that is horrifically destructive to our culture. And It could be argued that some of those well-intentioned programs and things that you're talking about that started four, five, six decades ago have morphed into very paternalistic things. And so it's possible that even our government could be considered paternalistic when you take it all the way down those lines. I mean, when you have people that have children and are in such a state that they have to rely on government assistance for housing, food, and the nurture of their children, and if by breaking through the ceiling of certain income levels, you start to lose those uh, benefits um, so that you don't even try to break through those ceiling for fear of losing the few benefits you have for your basic sustenance, I would say that that in and of itself is paternalistic. And so all I'm saying is, is it the paternalism thing is can also be systematic. And it doesn't necessarily mean that when two people of different races are working together that there's paternalism involved. It could just be humanity.
1: I want to tell you how I found out about your podcast because it relates to this very much. I have a term which I hold as the highest compliment available when I really appreciate people or a group of individuals, I don't say, you know, they're very smart, they're very accomplished. I say, you know what they are? They're normal folks, normal Americans. People who acknowledge all the bad and all the good, but step up and do the work. Do what needs to be done, not by running for office or writing great novels, not that there's anything wrong with that, but by making an impact in their own lives, in their own community, in their own corner of the world. And your new podcast, an army of normal folks is not only a celebration of these people, but really kind of a, a manifesto on, on on how to start fixing a bunch of these problems we just
2: talked about. How did he come up with this idea? Uh, completely on accident. Um, this thing's being recorded, right?
0: <laughs> yes, it is.
2: <laughs> it was that guy's idea. Yes, Say hi to Alex, everybody. <laughs> hey, Alex. Hey, Alex. So that cat right there came down about a year and a half and interviewed me. And it was a day I was especially perturbed at the folks in DC and New York. Uh, Something, I I really honestly don't remember the situation, but something happened that day. And I watched CNBC, CNN, Fox, and and Newsmax report on that thing. And it was like, we're on four different planets. The narrative about whatever that was and and the and the conversations and the reporting on it were all dissimilar. And and I was frustrated. And Alex, we were talking about how we're going to fix the proverbial it. And I simply said, you know what? There are neighborhoods we drive by every day. If you live in a city that when you look over the edge of the viaduct or down the road, it's where you don't want your car to break down. You don't want to have a flat tire there because you see the the poverty and the despair and the crime and the concern. And as you pass by, you exhale and say, whew. And then you think to yourself, you know, that is pitiful. Somebody ought to do something about that down there one day. And I suggest we kick that rearview mirror about 15 degrees to the left and maybe look at ourselves and say, maybe I could do something about some of that one day. And the reason I say that is government has proven woefully inadequate. Um, and I would argue that government is even incented by power an enormous amount of money based on that power to continue to divide us. Um, fancy people on the the national rate, the national TV, they're incented by power and enormous wealth to create narratives that divide us. Social media is not going to do anything for us. And Candidly, um, it's just going to take an army of normal folks. It's just going to take a whole bunch of people that see areas of need and their communities and say, I'm going to use my disciplines, my talents, where I'm passionate, and I'm going to employ them here and just fix something. And what would happen to our culture if we literally had tens of hundreds of thousands of people? Join an army of normal folks, just normal folks. I don't care if you're black, white, Hispanic, Asian, male, female, Christian, Jewish, Muslim, agnostic. Don't care if you're right, left, independent, whatever. It's not, it, it seems to me that someone involving themselves, giving them, them t- their time and their efforts to just make some measure of positive change. For someone in their community, celebrating humanity is something that, regardless of how you worship, how you think, how you vote, or how you look, we can all celebrate that. And they can't divide us. And we need to quit being led like a bunch of damn sheep by the people in DC and New York because we're going bah, and we're not even thinking. We're not even using our brains. We're not even saying, well, here's what's obvious we can adhere to these principles you're talking about that I could, we can be a forward-thinking, moving society without abandoning the core principles that defined us in the first place. And if we if we all could gather around these core principles and employ them in our lives, in our neck of the world, I think we could all celebrate that together, regardless of who we are and where we come from. So I said that to this guy sitting over here. He called me back seven months later and he said, I cannot get over the interview. And I was like, Oh, gosh, what did I say wrong? Oh. And he reminded me of that. <laughs> And he said, I want to, I think I want to start a podcast. I want you to host it. And I want you to go around. We're not going to interview all the fancy people. We're going to find stories of normal folks doing extraordinary things. We're going to explore who they are, where they come from, why they tick. We're going to explore all the barriers. You know, these people are not bequeathed or very, very wealthy people that did something nice." These are people that are normal folks, that have money troubles, family troubles, everything. We're going to explore that so that we can understand it takes effort for a normal person to do good things because we all have things we got to overcome in our lives, but despite it, not because of we're great, but despite the difficulties, these people still have done extraordinary things and changed their segment of the world. And we're going to tell that story. and obviously it's going to be well produced, redemptive, Interesting, you'll laugh, you'll cry, and all that. But most importantly, hopefully, it is inspirational and it will inspire more and more people after they listen to eventually hear a story that they say, you know what? I've got that skill set and I'm passionate about that. I can do that. So he said that. And I said, whatever, because I don't really <laughs> listen to podcasts. So about a about seven months ago, we started doing them, and six weeks ago, it released our first episode released, and I think we've been as high as number ten in the nation on Apple, and so it is resonating. And in short, it wasn't my idea; it was Alex's, and now we we're distributed by iHeart and Iron Light Labs in Chicago, is who's Alex with, and. They're finding these people for me to interview. And we go around, interview and tell these stories. And in the middle of it, try to inspire people to think beyond the narratives coming out of D.C. and Washington, that if you don't look or think or act like me, you're my enemy. That's crap.
0: Are you enjoying the process of, of doing a podcast now that you're in the podcast world?
2: Yeah, I mean, yeah, yes. I, I love meeting these people. They are every, there's not a single interview that I don't finish. And I think, wow, you know, what an amazing human being. And there's also not, I don't go in with a list of prepared questions. I let, I let the answers guide the next question. We haven't done a single interview that either during the interview or after the interview, the person hadn't said, do you know, I've never been asked that question nor have I ever thought about that about my own life. And I love that discovery. I love that, I love that reveal. Um, I love that people are emailing me. All of the guests give their personal contact information as well as I do and our producers. So I love the feedback I'm hearing. I mean, you know, there's been some that you suck, you're not good at it. It's a great <laughs> idea, but you're terrible. But most people <laughs> are really, really yeah. But most people are really, really good. And the feedback I'm getting is great. And I, I love that. I will tell you this, it's work. Because we do no Zoom. They're all face-to-face. I can't wow. have the interaction I want to have with these people unless it's face-to-face. So I'm traveling or they're traveling here. And so am I loving that part of the process? It's real live work to do this the way we want to do it, and do it right. But all in all, yeah, I love it. And most of all is, what if we really can get two, three, 400,000 weekly listeners to join the army of normal folks and actually start thinking about a world bigger than themselves. What if we can break down the inaccuracy of the narrative that if you don't think or vote or look or worship like me, you can't be, you must be my enemy or you must be my foe. What if we could start chipping away at that crap? And that's what I'm most incented by.
1: So, give us a little taste of these unbelievable inspirational stories, if you don't mind. I'd like to ask you to talk about my my own. I loved all the episodes, but my favorite was with a with a man named John Ponder.
2: Oh, yeah, he's unbelievable!
1: Tell us his story.
2: John is a guy who uh, grew up in New York, um, uh, Brooklyn, and uh, he was one of, I think, seven or eight kids. All the kids were involved. All his siblings were involved in crime and drugs and everything, and he. Got, I think his first arrest, he was at 11 or 12 years old. Anyway, led a life of crime, eventually robbed three pranks in Las Vegas and was looking at 23 years of federal time, hard time. And through a long, uh, list of circumstances ended up only getting four. And you need to listen to podcasts to hear how that happened. And when he got out of jail the very FBI agent that arrested him met him. And in jail, John decided that he was going to change his life and he was going to start an organization that kept prisoners from going back to jail. And the national rate of recidivism in the United States is 70%. He's been running Hope for Prisoners now for six or seven years and their rate is eight. And the secret sauce is he matches up these returning felons, uh, with law enforcement and law enforcement, sheriffs, uh, Las Vegas sheriff and police and FBI agents donate their time. They do it on their off hours and they mentor these former felons. And what, what's, what the, 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 the magics that are occurring is the felons no longer see the badge. They see the human being behind it. They start to understand the law and they don't want to break it because they now have a friend in it. And the other amazing thing is the police now start seeing the people that they're arresting and dealing with every day as human beings rather than just felons. And uh, it's been remarkable. And it's all because this guy named John Ponder, who led a life of crime and lots of crime, um, decided there was a better way. And he has changed the Las Vegas Prison systems and what's happening with people coming, and that what's amazing about is it's scalable. You can do that in any city in the United States, and if you can be a lifetime career criminal who's done federal time and come out and change thousands of people's lives in Las Vegas, anybody can.
1: I loved the story so much, and I love all the other stories, and it seems to me that there is a strong current of faith going through all of them, right? These are predominantly, whether stated or not, stories of people who found faith in in something bigger than themselves. They don't always call it, you know, religion. They don't always call it Jesus. Uh, They sometimes have different explanations, but it seems to me like these are all kind of stories of spiritual awakenings. Am I wrong?
2: I, I have found that too, but I want to be very careful with this. We do not specifically look for that. Again, I am not looking to interview a bunch of faithful people. I'm looking to interview normal folks. What's incredible, though, is as these stories do unfold, you're right. The vast majority of them exhibit or talk about some level of faith in their life. And I would say not all of them are specifically Christian. Um some just have are spiritual, some are, Faithful to to quote God, um, but yeah, you're right, and and you know, e- even e- even the there's a couple of stories uh, that that we've done that I know that people are not specifically religious, even the values and fundamentals and tenets they employed in their work oftentimes come from a faith perspective, if that makes any sense. So there is a prevailing um, uh, discovery of faith in each of these guests, but we don't go in looking for that or expecting that. And, but I'm not going to cut off a guest that wants to talk about their faith. And so I'll let it roll. Joshua, do you have any questions before we, uh, before
1: before we we conclude? your
2: question for us? i I do have a question i've oh, I've yeah. got many questions for y'all. <laughs> so one one that I wasn't even thinking, you know, you're a Jewish guy, right? And you talk specifically about John Ponder, who has clearly found his faith in jail, and you got to listen to the podcast to understand it. does his um, does his st- so strong? deep belief in Christ as a Jewish guy give you pause when you hear his story? It inspires me. I'm curious to see what
1: Joshua feels. It inspires me to no end. I I find it so incredibly moving. I think that one thing that all normal folks have in common uh, is the ability to to look at faith and, and really feel it for what it is. Not to try and find the sort of, you know, difference like, oh, he believes in Jesus and I don't. He's Muslim and I'm Hindu, so we can't ever connect. But rather to say, you know that thing that gets me out of bed every morning? You know the God that I pray to three times a day? You know the intense personal connection that I feel I have with my creator that guides and shapes every aspect of every interaction, every choice that I make in life, well, that person has it too. It's a different name for it. It's a different approach for it. It has a different set of beliefs and ideas. That's beautiful. That's something for me to learn from, to be inspired by, to be moved by, not to see as a kind of a, a, a hindrance or, or a threat.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I, I am beyond appreciative of that perspective by you because that's the way I feel, too, as a Christian. But I'm going to get to your question, but I, I got to hear your answer, too. I, I'd love... No, I'd, I was just going to agree. This stuff interests me I, I absolutely me feel the same.
0: When I listen to gospel music, it resonates with me for the same reason. You're uh, a
2: Jewish uh, guy that listens to gospel music? Absolutely.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Stories of faith uh, 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 resonate me, with me. I also think, and I hope, and I'm proud that, I think that is also a, there is a Jewish endorsement of that approach to the other or to other people's faith and an idea that non-Jews are are bound by seven laws of the sons of Noah. I don't want to get lost in the weeds, right? Am I right, Leo? That the idea is that uh, we don't expect people who aren't Jewish to observe Jewishly or to behave Jewishly. We expect and hope that that, that they live ethical lives.
1: I, I got to tell you a story, Coach, because I think you'll appreciate it. Tell it. And now I sound like, you know, like I'm on an army of normal folks. So I was 13, lived a life, grew up in Israel, lived a life of, you know. You grew up in Israel? I sure did. That's cool. All right, Just outside Tel Aviv. Uh, And um, when I was 13, my father, for a whole set of reasons, um, was arrested for robbing 21 banks. And I went from having a nice, cushy life with, you know, trips to New York and like beautiful house and everything to uh kind of being on the street visiting dad in jail every week you know strip search just kind of a really hard life and unlike you I was I was not taking it well I was very angry I was drinking I was getting into fights I was getting into trouble so one place I found refuge was boy scouts um, and the boy scouts have this annual delegation 3 months in America it's the highest kind of honor the movement in Israel could bestow on, on a young boy scout Uh, And I worked really hard to be one of the kids get selected and I got selected. And then the night of the selection, we're all standing in line to figure out where we're going to spend three and a half months. And, uh, you know, they start calling out names. Uh, You, you're going to this beautiful camp in New Jersey. You, you're going to camp fancy pants in Maine. You, you're going to this beautiful place in Vermont. And I was literally left last, dead last. And I go in and this guy who is, uh, you know, originally from Texas, uh, Jewish, you know, born in Texas, moved to Israel. He said, son, you're going to Memphis, Tennessee. No way. I had never heard of in my entire life. And I said, why? And he looked at me and he smiled and he said, well, son, because I don't think you're going to be afraid of him. And I didn't really know what he meant until I got to Memphis. What year was this? This was 1993, the summer of 93. The Chickasaw uh, I spent, Council. Absolutely. I was in Camp Kayakima uh, yeah. with, with my American brethren. I had the summer of my life, but I I had the great opportunity of really for the first time, because I grew up in a freaking Jewish state, right? Everyone yeah. around was Jewish. And here I was among people who who worshipped totally differently. Uh, and I understood that great line in the song, which I, I'm sure, you know, walking in Memphis. Yeah. You, you know that song? About 10 feet off says, the bill. You know, yeah, you know, tell me. So there's a great line in the song in which, you know, he's talking to, to a, a gospel singer. And she says, tell me, son, are you a Christian? Ma'am, he says, I am tonight. Ma'am, I am tonight. That's how I felt that summer. It was one of the most moving experiences in my life. That
2: is phenomenal.
1: So, Coach, uh, as as our Gentile of the week, which, by the way, congratulations! You are now oh, I'm, a, I'm
2: the Gentile of the week. Well done. Yes, you are, yeah, that's sir. That's right. How do I? How do, G-O- I how do I get nominated for Gentile of the year? I want to be that I, guy. I, I think you're. I think you're the. Four-runner. It's a very strong right entry. Right very yeah. strong <laughs> entry.
1: <laughs> you you have the privilege of asking this internationally acknowledged panel of Jewish experts any question, anything
2: you ever wanted to know uh, about the Jews. So please, now, I wrote this last night. Do the thousand years. Of Jewish persecution, give the modern Jew a chip on their shoulder? And does the strength of Israel give the modern Jew a quiet, maybe even unspoken middle finger to the masses involved in the past persecution? And the reason I ask that is you know, the Egyptians were particularly terrible to you guys a few millennia ago. And, um, it didn't get any better all the way through the 1940s, really. And um, Jews are still kind of persecuted. And even if not um, with regional issues, um, you know, there's there's a, a bunch of persecution that goes on with Jewish folks. And, you know, out of it, somehow you guys have survived and created this, really militarily strong sliver of land over there on the Eastern Mediterranean. And I just wonder, you know, does that kind of, do you guys quietly behind doors get around in a circle when nobody else is around and blow your chest out and say, see there, screw you and stick your finger up in the air because we (laughs) survived it and you can't extinguish us. I, 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 I really wonder about that.
0: I'm a little worried about the image of getting together in a circle behind closed doors. (laughs) Other than that, other than that, I accept your question. (laughs) Well, I mean that with like (laughs) wine
2: and some of that bland bread y'all eat. (laughs) (laughs) Guilty, guilty, guilty. Uh, Well, what I say is this is
0: I do think, yes, we have, alas, inherited genetic trauma I mean, and if you read articles, I'm I'm no scientist, but uh, there's a thing. Uh, I think it's called epigenetic inheritance—the idea that environmental factors can actually affect you physically and be passed on to your children. Uh, do Jews tend to have an anatomical feature of a chip on our shoulder? I suppose the answer is yes, and I, I think it's well earned. And I think of Israel as, uh, yes, a a necessity and a place of great importance to our people. I hope that we don't view it, although I'm sure some do, as a middle finger to anybody, because I think in order for it to be a place of safety, security, and peace, we have to accept that uh, we have Arab citizens, uh, that uh, our coming home as refugees created uh, refugees of another people. And so there are important issues. And I hope that we look at Israel as something more nuanced than a middle finger to anyone. But it's a fine question.
1: And and I don't want to spoil uh, the ending of the Bible to those who haven't read it. Uh, but but here's how it ends. Uh, which Bible? You know, it, the, 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 one, the one we all share. Uh, okay. Both of us share. Uh, there is uh, There's a really beautiful note in which the prophet says, and my house shall be a house of worship unto all people. I think that to me is the vision of modern Israel. Yes, it's a safe haven for Jews, and that's so important and so wonderful. But Israel isn't a normal country, just like America isn't a normal country. These, as far as I uh, am concerned, are the only two countries in the world that are truly, you know, covenantal. That are truly have a special kind of divine election mission to them. And the mission is precisely that, is, is to ring the bell of liberty, is to ring the bell of peace, is to ring the bell of freedom and opportunity for everyone and, and to inspire with with a higher calling and a higher light. And so as long as we're doing that, and it really does take an army of normal folks to do that, we'll be all right. Wow, what a nice
2: transition. <laughs> Gosh, I don't know who's interviewing who here. He's good, he's yeah. good. I, I mean, I ask that, because, ironically, what was that term you used that was a genetic predisposition? You, you, you,
0: I think it's called epigenetic inheritance, the idea okay. that we can physically inherit, yeah.
2: Okay, well, could it be argued then that, now I'm going way out there here, but I can't Go help but think it. could. <laughs> could it be argued then that the Jewish people and the descendants of American slaves share that
0: yes i think absolutely that is most likely the case and i uh uh, it hurts me and it pains me when our two communities are at odds when i think there's uh so
2: much uh common ground that's what i was going to go to is should that not be a a a place of commonality that should be discussed and talked about and opened up and vetted and felt and paid for for folks to help one another understand. I mean, to me, that seems like a a real place of commonality.
1: You know, I think I think more than a commonality just between these two communities. I have a good friend, um, Rabbi Ari Lamb that says that the uh the Hebrew Bible or or as y'all know it, the old testament, uh, is every bit the founding moral document of this country as True. the constitution is the founding political document of this country and if you look at the greatest leaders of civil rights right you look at sojourner truth for example she's standing there in front of a crowd of you know white racist men shouting trying to hurt her and she's saying i am like queen esther i have come to deliver my people you hear martin luther king saying i've been to the mountaintop uh, All of these imagery that they use, Frederick Douglass, up until Barack Obama, they're all imagery taken from the Hebrew Bible. They're all the words and the vision of of those ancient prophets of Isaiah and Jeremiah and and, and these guys. I think uh, the more we kind of connect back to that and understand that the way forward, to addressing uh, the many racial inequities in this country isn't by posing it as a sort of like, well, this is a war of me versus you. It's about who has more privilege or less privilege or more power, or less power. But but let's get back to first principles here. Let's get back to the moral vision that we all share and use that as a, as a light to shine the way forward.
2: We'll, we'll be much better off. I couldn't agree more. I think it's interesting. Okay, well, thanks for answering my question. That was fun.
1: Coach Courtney, <laughs> we cannot thank you enough for being our guest on Unorthodox.
2: I am, I am so honored to have been with you, and thank you so much for the for listening and joining the army and plugging it a little bit. And I I hope all your listeners will give it a shot.
0: Right on! Thank you so much. Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by me and Stephanie Butnick and Leo Leibovitz. We're produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramuccia, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. Our team includes Tanya Singer, Courtney Hazlett, Daronne Rusquet, with help from Sam Hacker, and Jordana LaRosa. Get your Unorthodox merch. Please, get it at tabletstudios.com. Our episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Our logo and merch is designed by Jenny Rosbrook. Our theme music is by Golem, and our news and mailbox themes are by Steve Barton. Please send us emails at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or leave a message on our listener line, 914-570-4869. Until next week, shalom, friends.